Welcome to the Glasgow Baptist Podcast, where each week we bring you the message from our Sunday morning worship service with Pastor Erdie Carter. We want to help you apply biblical truth to your daily life. Well, good morning, church. If you were here to uh, see Pastor Erdie preach today, I'm sorry you're stuck with me, but we'll get through it. All right, we're going to be in John 6, so if you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and turn there. We'll talk a little bit before we get into the Scripture, but give you some time to turn there. John chapter 6. So speaking of Dr. Martin Luther King, um, it's easy to see the impact that he has had on our country, Um, and his legacy still lives on today. Um, Through his legacy, we have buildings, we have schools, we have statues, Uh, We have bridges, streets, all these things named after him. Not only was Dr. King, you know, a a figure in our past, he's still a hero for many today. And he was not just a leader for the civil rights movement, he might have been the face of it. So Dr. King was a powerful leader in a dark period of our nation's past. And he's a symbol for hope for many. Not only was he this leader, but he was also a man of God. And he served as a pastor for many years. So Dr. King led groups and crowds of people on marching for equality and served as a hero for many people. Like Dr. King, Moses was also a man of God. Moses also led his people on marches. Moses also led his people out of slavery. Moses was a hero for the Israelites, just as Dr. King was a hero for his people. After all, Moses was the man who met God on the mountaintop, so if somebody's going to be the hero for the Israelites, it's going to be that guy. So Dr. King and Moses were not just religious leaders. They were leaders for their people. Both of these men knew who they were and knew that they were not the savior of their people. They knew they were only effective in their lives with the power of the Holy Spirit working through them. It's evident that, the, that how much love that the Jews had for Moses. Towards the end of chapter 5, we, talk, we see that where Jesus is talking to the crowd. Moses knew that the prophet, capital P, prophet was coming into the world, and that prophet was Jesus Christ. God sent Moses into Egypt to free his people, but God sent Jesus, maybe a greater Moses, into the world to free his people from the slavery to sin. So in John chapter 5, verse 45 to 47, it says, Do not think, this is Jesus talking, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed in Moses, you would believe in me, because he wrote about me. But if you don't believe the words that he wrote, how will you believe my words? So today we're going to be talking about some similarities between Jesus and Moses. We're going to be talking about how Jesus actually walked in the footsteps of Moses. So a few similarities. One right off the bat. Um, since we're going to be in John 6, that's the feeding of the 5,000. Both Jesus and Moses led huge crowds. Jesus had started his ministry. He had started performing these miracles, started showing his divinity, and people were following. Just as Jesus led a crowd, Moses, we know because we've been in Exodus, Uh, led his people out of Egypt. He was leading a enormous crowd. So when we think of Moses, at least I do, 
I think of, uh, is his name Charleston Heston, the guy from Ten, Ten, Ten Commandments? I think of that guy just walking around with his staff doing, doing these cool things and just working through the power of God. So that's number one, leading a crowd. Number two is powerful signs. We know we've been in Exodus, powerful signs, and there's 10 of them there. If, nobody, if there was a few Israelites that were not too sure about Moses, like, I don't know about that guy. After those 10 signs, they're like, yeah, I'm on his side for sure. Well, they're obviously on his side because the other side was slavery, so they're going to be on Moses' side anyways. So we have leading a crowd, powerful signs, and then the mountaintop experience. So we know Moses went onto the mountaintop and met God and came down with the Ten Commandments. And later in verse, or chapter 6, we'll see that Jesus, after feeding the crowd, retreated to the mountaintop. And we'll, we'll understand why here in a little bit. And then the last one would be Passover. So we know Moses led the Israelites into the first Passover. And when Jesus is feeding the multitude here, it's right before Passover, right before the Feast of the Jews. But one major difference in the Passover is that Moses brought Passover elements, but Christ came to be the Passover meal. All of these similarities show that Jesus is walking in the footsteps of Moses. All of these similarities may, may be by chance. You may be thinking, oh, these are just coincidence. That just, that just maybe happened to work together. But church, I believe that if we think that things just happen by chance in the Bible, we have such a small picture of God. If we believe these things happen just by chance, we have such a small picture of the power of Christ. So how is Jesus walking in the footsteps of Moses? So the first six chapters of John we see that Jesus is starting his ministry. We see that he is showing signs of his divinity, showing signs that he is the son of God. He turned water into wine at the wedding when there was no wine. And not only did he turn water into wine, it was the best wine that the party ever tasted. He spoke truth to the woman at the well. He spoke to sin in her life that no one else knew. He healed a man who couldn't walk and said, get up and walk. And he even healed the official son. Jesus isn't done here, and we're about to see the true power of Christ. So if you have your Bibles, we'll, uh, we'll be in verses 1 to 15, John chapter 6, 1 through 15. I'll read it if you just follow along. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain and sat there with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where do we buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered, 200 denarii would not be enough to buy bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what is that for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there is much grass in this place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also with the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten to their fill, he told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five loaves left by those who had eaten. 
When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving that they were about to take him and force him into, to be king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountaintop. So that's the first kind of chunk of scripture we're going to be hanging out in for a little while. So obviously this is the story of the feeding of the 5,000. So already uh, has been walking through Exodus. We've been hanging out there for a little while. And some of this will sound familiar. We're going to be flip-flopping back and forth between Moses and then Jesus. So while in the wilderness, we know that God provided food for the Israelites. Because we know that they're going to be in the wilderness for a little while. They're going to be traveling around. There's no way that they could take enough food with them. There's no way that they could have prepared for this. The only way that they were going to survive is from the providence of God. The manna sent from heaven was God's providence to ensure their daily needs were met. But they weren't satisfied with just bread. We know that they wanted meat. They said, let's get, we need some meat. So God being nice enough, he sent them pigeon. Our situation looks a little bit different than the Israelites. We can go to Walmart, we can go to Food Line, we can go to Save a Lot, we can go places and get food. But we still must rely on God to meet our daily needs. Israel was completely dependent on God to provide. Yet they kept complaining, they kept complaining, they kept complaining. God provided. He heard their bickering. He said, I'm still going to give you some bread, but here. God provided everything that the Israelites needed. It looks a little bit different, church, but he does the same for you and me. He provides what we need. Oftentimes, I think people think that prayer works a little bit differently than it does. Sometimes the answer is yes, sometimes the answer is no, and sometimes the answer is hold on a little bit. Church, just because we pray for something does not mean it's going to happen. Israel was completely dependent on God to provide. Just as they, he provided for them, he provides for us. Neither manna, nor fish, nor bread will completely satisfy us. Jesus came to the world not to provide, but to satisfy us to the center of our souls. Matthew 4, 4 says, man must not live by bread alone, but from every word out of the mouth of God. So focusing on verses 5 to 9 here, Jesus has a problem. He has 5,000 people, and they're hungry. He sees the need to provide for them. There's a huge crowd. They follow him. They've been seeing the wondrous things he's been doing. And he says, these people need to eat. So Jesus turned to Philip. I think God, God has a hilarious sense of humor. When Jesus turns to Philip, he asks him a question. He says, Philip, what do you think we better do here? Not because Jesus doesn't know what he's going to do. It's to, it's to set up what he's going to do. He already knew what was going to happen. So he asked Philip, Philip, what do you think we better do? I guess Philip's uh, the penny pincher and goes, we don't have enough money to even consider paying for this crowd. He says 200 denarii, and that's about eight months' wages. He said, there's no way we can afford to pay for these people to eat. And I was thinking, like, even if they had enough money, how long would it take to make that much bread? How long would it take to catch that much fish, to feed 5,000 so if you know anything about volleyball, I know the slightest about volleyball. So here's my 
take at a volleyball analogy. So you have two sides, right? And there's a net and there's a ball. And so imagine the problem or the situation of needing to feed this crowd. That's the ball and it's coming over to the net. And once it comes over to the net, this team has three hits to get it back over. So the ball comes over. Oh, what, are we gonna, what do we need to do to feed this crowd? And so Philip, he, set, he bumps it. He gets it into the air for his teammates to hit it, right? So he bumps it. Oh, we don't have enough money. So now we're going to go to see who's going to hit it the second time. And so Andrew chimes in and says, there's a boy here. He has five loaves and two fish. He sets it up. He hits it. Oh, I don't know what to do. Someone else take care of it. So they have one more hit to get it back over. And just picture Jesus on the back line that's ready to smack that volleyball on the other side. And so that's what he's going to do. He's he set up. He asked a question. And now he's, gonna, he's just going to spike it. So Andrew chimes in and says, we have this boy who has a happy meal. We can't feed all these people. So Jesus, getting ready to spike the ball, he says, all right, watch me work. And so we must not underestimate the power of Jesus Christ. Oftentimes when we're reading in the gospel accounts, I'll look at the, the disciples and say, what are you doing? Why are you doubting? Why aren't you believing? But at the same time, I believe we doubt or not believe just as much. Oftentimes we believe that we can handle a lot of things on our own. Oftentimes we believe that we're supposed to handle things on our own. Church, we cannot handle everything by ourselves. We have to rely on the power of Christ. I know whenever, um, from personal experience, when I try to handle everything, I get overwhelmed. When I try to take on everything, I get anxious. Because that's me being prideful. That's me not asking for help. That's me relying on myself and not God. I hear myself saying, I got this. I can do this. I, 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 and then boom. I feel like the weight of the world is on my shoulders. The good news, church, is that we do not have to do this on ourself, by ourselves, and we cannot do it alone. We're to cast our burdens onto the Lord and let him break our bondage to this world. Sometimes we look at the disciples, or I, I do, and they're just doubting. And then we look back in the nation of Israel, and they were doubting. When Moses went on to the mountaintop, they're like, oh, what do we do? Uh, how about make a golden calf? And they do that. Like, what are you doing? But oftentimes, when we, when we see these, these stories in the Bible, we want to put ourselves in the position of the hero, in the, in the position of those doing right. But I would beg to differ that we usually are on the side of the doubters. We must open our eyes, we must realize the power of Christ, and we must rely on him. Now we're going to be hanging out in verses 10 to 13. Just as Moses dealt with doubters in the desert, Jesus is dealing with that with his disciples. But even though there's doubting, God provided. Jesus is able to feed the crowd through God's providence. Jesus took the bread, took the fish, prayed over them. And then in verse 11, it's one of the, the coolest verses in this, in this story is that he said, let everyone eat to their fill. Not, hey, just take a little bit. Take a couple pieces and make sure we can feed the other 4,999 people here. We're talking about basically five pieces of bread and two little sardines. If the first guy's a big eater, he could have wiped it out there. But, but God here, but Jesus. When Jesus is the provider, 
there is never a limit. When Jesus is the provider, nothing runs out. When Jesus is the provider, nothing compares to what comes from his blessing. He made, wine, he made water into wine. He fed the 5,000 people when there was not enough food. He was beaten, mocked, crucified on a cross. And he said, you know what, death? Not today. I'll see you in three days. I'll be back. He took that cross for me, church. He took that cross for you, church. That cross did not have his name on it. That was our cross. Jesus does not meet dead ends. Jesus doesn't do enough just to get by. Jesus doesn't lose. So now everyone on the hillside has hatred or fill. Everybody's full. And now Jesus is saying, collect what's left. Collect what's left from five pieces of bread and two fish. What we see here is not only did Jesus provide for their needs, he went above and beyond. He said, have a to-go box, see you later. Jesus did not want anything here to go to a waste, church. And that's good news for us. It's because Jesus does not lose things that belong to him. This is comforting for believers because through the thick and thin, through our trials, through our tribulations, Christ is there. He doesn't lose what belongs to him. And maybe you're thinking, what about those who aren't believers? What about those who don't belong to him? Nothing you have done, nothing you will do, nothing you are doing is too much for the power of Christ. No baggage, no wandering is too much for the Son of God. We see the story in Luke with the, with, with the shepherd. He has a flock. What's he do when one wanders off? He says, well, I got 99 over here, right? I'm good, that one can just go on. No, he leaves the 99 and goes after the lost one. And what's he do when he gets there? Does he put a leash on it and walk him back? No, he carries it. That's why Christ is signified with the shepherd is because the shepherd protects his sheep. The shepherd doesn't lose his sheep. No matter how far you've wandered, no matter how far you've gone, you're never too gone for the Son of God. Jesus does not lose Jesus does not lose things that belong to him. Through the power of God, Moses and Jesus satisfy the hunger for the crowd. And we know what belongs to them does not go to waste. So now we're going to jump over to 16 to 21. This is another really cool passage of scripture. It says, when evening came, his disciples, Jesus' disciples, went down to the sea. They got into the boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not come to them yet. The sea became rough, became strong wind, as was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. And then immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So this is another, another big sign here, is that he fed the multitude just as Moses did. And now they both have incredible experiences by the water. And so now we know uh, through the story of the Exodus, Moses, what happens? They, they leave, they kind of come to the sea, and then Pharaoh's like, you know what, I'm going to go get them. And so they go and they're trapped, Right? They're trapped with their backs to the sea. They have nowhere to go. Then Charleston Heston walks out with his staff. Boom! 
splits the sea, dry ground, they walk through it. God provided. Same, same thing here with Jesus walking on the water. After the miracle of the feeding, Christ sends the disciples out to sea, puts them in a the boat and says, hey, I'll catch you later. They rode out a few miles. I've kayaked in the ocean before and I've gone out a mile. I don't see how these guys were just not fit as heck because rowing that kayak is tough. So they go out a few miles and what do we see? The wind's blowing. When you're out on the water and the wind's blowing, the seas kind of get choppy, right? But they were, they were probably used to this. They weren't afraid of the storm. But what they were afraid of is incredible. They look off in the distance, they're like, what is that? That's a man walking from the shore out onto the sea to our boat. They had just seen Jesus feed 5,000 people from five pieces of bread and two fish, and then they see a man walking on the water, and their first, uh, their first idea is not, hey, maybe that's Jesus. No, their first instinct is to be afraid. And I can understand that, because if, if I was out here at the lake and I saw someone just cruising along across the water, I'm like, okay, what's going on? But no, they've seen the miracles of God, they've seen the working of Jesus, yet they're still afraid. But what they're afraid of, church, is something we gotta look at. They didn't say, oh, they're afraid of the waves. They're afraid of the storm. No, they're afraid of the God-man walking out to meet them. They're afraid of the creator of the storm. They're not afraid of the storm. Jesus, he just healed people. He just fed the 5,000. And then the disciples forget all about it and say, I don't know what that is, but we're afraid of it. They're not afraid of the storm, folks. They're afraid of the storm maker. So how is Jesus walking in the footsteps of Moses? We know as Moses led his people out of Egypt and free from slavery, fast forward to Jesus coming into the world, Israelites are being oppressed again. But by who? Right, the Roman Empire. Good job. The Roman Empire was oppressing Israel. And now we're going to look at why Jesus went to the mountaintop. God? <laughs> if you're watching someone's Bible app, this one also, it's good. Okay, verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, you look here, king is lowercase. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain. So the Jews, they saw the working of Jesus and they wanted the man of Jesus. They just wanted the man. They wanted to bring him in, make him a king, and hopefully overthrow the Roman Empire. Jesus had something far greater than being someone's political puppet to do. He came to wage war on sins of all mankind Jesus' life, his whole purpose was to be born a virgin, grow into a man, teach about his father, and then die a death he did not deserve. His rightful place is at the right hand of a father, and to get there, he went on a cross and was crowned with thorns. Moses won a great victory over Egypt. They left 
They left Egypt, they left slavery. But that's nothing in comparison to the victory that Christ has over death. Do you ever wonder or think about how we approach Jesus? Do you ever wonder how we go to him in prayer? As verse 15 was talking about, the Jews were coming to force Jesus into kingship. They wanted Jesus, but not what he had to offer. We cannot force Jesus into a place. We cannot force Jesus into a scenario. We can't force Jesus into a box. We can only bargain. We can only beg. We can only plea with the grace, for the grace and mercy that we do not deserve. Yet he gives new mercies every day. Sometimes we want the rewards of kingdom, but we belittle the king. When we think of Jesus, we must realize the power that he has, the power that he holds, the power that he's shown, and the sacrifice that he has made. And most importantly, the love that he gives. Moses led his people out of Israel, out of bondage. I'm sorry, out of Israel. They're, they're, they're Israelites. Let them out of Egypt, out of bondage. And, J, and then Jesus came to lead his people into another exodus, out of sin and death, into the true promised land, which is the kingdom of heaven. So church, what does this mean for us? What does this mean for us today? How do the stories impact us today? I believe that we have all learned about the power of Christ. I think we have all heard the stories of the power of Christ. I believe that we have an, uh, an inkling of understanding of the power of Christ, but I, I believe we don't truly understand the power that Christ holds. I think the couple of the most powerful verses in all of Scripture we can find in Genesis. We can find in our creation story. And that is our God speaking things into existence. Do we ever think about that? I was thinking about that the other day. He was there, and he said light, and it was there. He said land, it was there. He said water, it was there. He said those people in Kentucky need racehorses, and they were there. <laughs> he speaks everything into existence, yet we still don't completely understand his power. Maybe it's from him empowering regular, regular men and women in Scripture. Maybe it's stories from, maybe think of Daniel and the lion's den. Daniel's a young guy and gets thrown into a den of hungry lions. They come back a day later and say, um, they look like house cats. They're not doing anything. God protected Daniel. Maybe it's his friends who were thrown into the fiery furnace. We know that the furnace was so hot, it killed the man who put, the, put them into the furnace. And so there's no way anyone could have survived that. And then King Nebuchadnezzar, he was saying, hey, didn't we only throw three guys in there? And they said, yeah, I think so. But they look and there's four in the fire. The ropes are gone and they're dancing in the fire. They're cruising, they're just walking around. Nothing's happening. They come out, not a, a hair is harmed on their head. Their clothing was not burned at all. 
If this fire was so hot, it just killed the man who opened the door. There's no way that they're not burnt up a little bit. But God protected them. Maybe we think of Rahab. She sheltered the spies. She had heard the stories of God. She had heard what had happened in Egypt. She had heard of the plagues. And she said, I want to be on that side. I believe in that God. Or maybe we think of John the Baptist, maybe the greatest man who ever lived. The man who baptized our Savior, the man who came and prepared a way. We look at John 1, and we see in the first verses, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word with God was with God. In those verses, we can replace the word Word and put Jesus in. The Word is Christ. Christ came to dwell among us. He took on flesh. He brought himself down from heaven, took on flesh, belittled himself just to save you and me. We have to understand and completely, fully get the power of Christ. We must have complete and utter faith of the risen Savior who took on death, death on a cross, He laughed in the face of death. The same God who spoke everything into existence, the same God who took on flesh, the same God who brought his people out of Egypt, the same God who fed the 5,000, the same God who walked on water once a relationship with you and me. I don't know about y'all, but that just fires me up. That God cares about me of all the sins that I've done, of all the wrong that I've done, of all the shortcomings in my life, of all the things I regret. Yet he sees me at my worst and says, I like that one, I want that one. And he's standing there with open arms. Makes me think of the prodigal son. When he comes back, his father picks up his robe and runs out there. Puts rings on his son's finger, welcomes him in, kills a fatted calf, throws a party. Because someone who was lost is now found. Someone who was gone is now back. Jesus does not lose things that belong to him. Jesus doesn't meet dead ends. Jesus doesn't lose. If you're here today and you think, I want to know that Jesus. If you're watching and you're saying, hey, I want to know that Jesus. If you're listening on the radio and say, hey, I want to know that Jesus. Our invitations look a little bit different now. We're not, we're not, we can't do the come down to the altar. So behind me, there's going to be a phone number. If you want to give your life to Christ, if you need to rededicate your life. If, you've, if you know God, if you've been saved, but you've wandered, and you need to get back on track, if you need to make today a fresh start, or if you want to join our church, please give us a call. We're here for you. We're here to pray for you and help you in any way. Our challenge, here's our challenge for the week, church. Look for ways that we can understand the power of Christ. Look for ways that Christ is showing his divinity in our lives. Look for ways that we can better understand the power of Christ. Will you pray with me? Father, I just thank you for this day and this 
Thank you for all those who came to worship with us or are worshiping at home. Just thank you that you look at us on our worst days and you say, I want him. I want her. We are so undeserving of the grace and mercy that you show us. We see in John chapter 6 is that your son, the prophet, came into the world, did miraculous signs, fed the 5,000 and walked on water. And then after these signs, he will meet a death he did not deserve. Yet he took it willingly. I just ask that you, you guide us and you lead us throughout the week and through the, through the rest of the month and through the rest of the year that we will understand the power of Christ, that we will recognize the power of Christ. And that same power of Christ, if you've, if you've accepted Christ, is living in us. Just thank you for this day that you have given us to worship in your house. I ask that you guide and lead us and keep us safe. It's in your name I pray. Amen.